Okay, let's open up in prayer as we look to continue in the fruit of the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, by your Spirit dwelling within us, you have given us the, uh, the very indwelling of your presence with us and who desires to change us and to mould us and become more like Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that, that the wonderful inheritance of the Holy Spirit is a, is a gift that comes as part of the salvation that you have secured for us through Jesus' death and resurrection for all who would turn from their sin and, and place their trust in Jesus. Our Lord, as we've looked through the series on the fruit of the Spirit, we pray that you would continue to work within us that which is pleasing to you and according to your will that we might be uh, on a regular basis being transformed to become more like your Son. So help us to uh, wrestle with the concept of uh, self-control this morning, uh, but to do so in such a way uh, that refines us to be more the people that you have created us to be in your image. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In ancient times, a city's biggest defences were the walls they built around it. Now, not only did it protect that which was on the inside and look after it, but it also protected from things coming in you didn't want there. In not-so-ancient times, when we were living down in Victoria, Sarah built a fence. She built a fence around our vegetable garden because our dog loves raw broccoli. Now, that fence was constructed, it had two purposes. One was to protect the vegetables, particularly the broccoli, and the other thing was there were things inside that garden that were actually um, poisonous for dogs to eat. So the fence served two purposes. It protected the good things, uh, but it also kept out the things which were damaging. And I can assure you, without that fence, we would have never, ever, ever had broccoli and the dog would have had lots. That being said, there were times when the dog did get through the fence. The dog so wanted the fence, it would do whatever it took to rip and get whatever part just so it could get in there and get some broccoli. And I thought there's some wonderful parallels there when we talk about self-control as the fruit of the Spirit. That God has given us everything as by way of both warning and his declared word of what he wants us to stay away from, but also the means to restrain us so that we don't walk in them. But on the other hand, there's still a very strong urge of us that says, I don't care what's been put in place, I'm going to rip on through and I'm going to chase after it anyway. This is our second last in our series on the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, we've defined, is being any change or transformation of character, thought and action in the life of a Spirit-led believer by the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus. The analogy we've used throughout the series is the primary goal, if our goal is to produce fruit, our primary goal and our primary pursuit is in a closer relationship with God. Not only so we know what is pleasing to him and the things that he's commanded us, but also as we come to know him more dearly, the more we'll want to do the things that are pleasing to his sight and in close communion with him, we also have the enabling to do the things that he lays out before us. As we looked at Galatians 5, one thing we noticed was that there were two lists that were set in dramatic contrast. There was the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And they were put at odds at one another, saying if you exercise one, you'll hinder the other. But not only does Paul say that they are opposed to one another, James speaks of the way our fleshly desires lead us to sin. 
James says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. I love James's perspective. It's not very comfortable for us because it means that in the end we've got no excuse. It says, our sin comes from the result of when we're enticed by our own desire. So not only does the fleshly desires lead us towards sin, Peter speaks of it in even harsher terms, saying, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Have you ever thought about that? The very fleshly passions that we have, Peter speaks them in terms that they wage war against our soul. So there's a sense in which self-control is kind of like the wall of ancient times, not so much the broccoli wall, that guards and protects what is important and valuable, but also protects us from the destructive things, and particularly that come from our own fleshly desires. You'll notice that a person without self-control becomes very easy prey to sin and to the desires of the flesh. Now, a lot of people make a big issue about the actual order of the way the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is listed. Is there any meaning to it? And I don't know whether there's too much to be said about it, but I think potentially there's something to be said about why love is listed first and why self-control is listed last. We saw as we looked at love that love is the essential spiritual grace from which all of these others stand. It's very hard to practice any of these others without a sense of um, coming from a, a heart of love. But also because all of these things are so contrary to our natural, natural nature, they require self-discipline in order to be exercised. So self-control, what is it? I've got two definitions. One is from a from one of the Puritans and one's just from the Oxford Dictionary. The Oxford Dictionary defines it as this, the ability to control one's emotions, behaviour and thoughts, especially in difficult situations. That's the Oxford Dictionary. Or Puritan George Bethune puts it in this way, the healthy regulation or control of our desires and appetites so as to prevent their excess. That's an interesting definition, isn't it? a control or regulation of our desires that we have and our appetites so as to prevent their excess. Because quite often when we think about self-control, we tend to think of it in the sense of restraining or holding ourselves back from particular actions or emotions or thoughts. But self-control also includes protecting and guarding that which is important. For example, it takes self-control, self-discipline to be disciplined in spending time in God's word and in prayer. I'm yet to meet a Christian who hasn't found that a difficult struggle. So part of self-control is intentionally guarding what is important even when you do not feel like it. It's a hard principle to live by, but I often like to think of who am I as a child of God determines how I act, whether I feel like it or not. Now, that's the principle I'd love to live by. I can't say I get that right all the time. But in the end, who I am as a child of God, who what God says about me, what God calls me to, that is how I should live, whether it feels like the most attractive option or not. Now, sometimes that might even mean forcing myself to do things that I have no desire to do whatsoever. 
Who's ever read, got to a point where they feel like they're just forcing themselves to read the Bible because it's, they're a child of God, that's what they're supposed to do. Or force themselves to pray because they think, I don't feel like it, but this is who I am in Christ. Now, there's one sense when that's got us to think, that doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? Forcing yourself to do stuff against your will. Yet we have Paul give this own description of his life. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, this is one verse where the ESV is probably under-translated. It's literally it's saying, I beat myself black and blue and make my flesh slave to me. In other words, my fleshly desires don't determine who I am and what I do, but rather who I am in Christ determines and restrains my fleshly desires. Paul's resolve is to keep his flesh obedient to him even when it goes against his very desires. So as we look at self-control, I'm going to look in three different areas and it's certainly not going to be comprehensive and there's probably a lot more that could be said. One being our bodies, our minds and our emotions. Starting with self-control in our bodies. It's probably the first thing that people think of when they think self-control, they think about looking after themselves, the things that they do in the body. Now when God created us and when he gave us things within creation, he just didn't give us functional things. He gave us things for our pleasure and enjoyment. We see in Galatians 2, out of the ground the Lord made, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. When God created, he created things that are pleasant to the eye and good for food. Paul goes even a step further in terms of the extent of which he provides things for our enjoyment. In 1 Peter Timothy 6, 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Isn't that good? The Almighty God provides us with everything we need to enjoy, not just to get by. And I don't know how often you've thought about this, but much of what we call sin is enjoying something which God has given for our good and enjoyment in a way different than God has, has prescribed or, or using it in excessively than the way that God prescribed. Say, for example, sex is a wonderful thing which God has given. It's a beautiful thing. It's not something dirty we, we should be all ashamed of. But God has given sex as a good gift to be experienced within a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. We already saw from the reading in Genesis God created food that was pleasing to the eye and was good for food. Yet to be gluttonous and eating constantly in excess is not pleasing to God or honoring to him. So as we look at our bodies, we're going to look at gluttony, which is food and drink, laziness and sexual impurity. Firstly, regarding food and drink. As Paul has made very clear in 1 Corinthians 10, we can eat and drink to the glory of God. Even base things of eating and drinking can be in a way which is glorifying to God, but also in a way that is not honouring to God. When it comes to our eating, we are called to be good stewards of everything we have. That includes the food that we have available to us and also our bodies, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I remember a 
couple of years back, I noticed it started to make a bit of a comeback on TV. My little way of relaxing after church, I like to do something totally brainless. There was a time when on Sunday afternoon you could watch Man vs. Food. If you've never seen that show, it's basically a guy who goes to these restaurants where they've got these ridiculous size meals and you get on the wall of fame if you can complete them. They're either ridiculous size or extremely spicy. And I like to find that entertaining. But that's probably not a good example of good stewardship and, and I don't know how his body's holding up these days, but I'm guessing he doesn't do that on a regular basis. But God has provided food for our enjoyment. And when we abuse it, and use it in a way that's not honouring to him, is not only that dishonouring to God and being a bad steward of the food, uh, but also bad stewards of our body, which he's given to us. Now, that's not talking about, you know, if you have a big lunch at Christmas and you have a nana nap in the afternoon to lie down because you've eaten too much like you do every other of the year, but particularly if your natural desire is always to eat every single thing that comes into your head that you feel like eating is probably not a good idea. And have you ever noticed when you're craving food, it's never healthy stuff? Who's ever, like, just been sitting at home and say, oh, I'm just fanging for some kale? <laughs> I haven't. So if you have, well done. Self, self-control. So there's eating but drinking. Now, there was a time when you probably wouldn't even need to warn Christians about drinking in such a way that was not honouring to God. Yet we live in a times when there's a great increase of drunkenness even amongst Christians. Now the Bible doesn't, and therefore I'm not going to either, the Bible does not condemn alcohol. It never does, and if it did then poor old Jesus and the apostles are in a bit of trouble. But it does speak very clearly against drunkenness. Usually any time you talk about this, someone asks the question, how do you find drunk? In other words, it's kind of like the question you have when you're talking to a youth group about relationships and they want to say, how far can I go? I would define it in this way. This is Steve's definition. This isn't the Bible's definition, but it would seem to, to make sense. When your personal holiness is at risk of being compromised, I would call that drunkenness. Not when it has, not when you can't remember how you got home and you can't remember the That's way beyond but when there is a risk to your witness to christ not when it's actually happened when it's at risk when it's potentially compromised i would call that the time when you are being led more more so by alcohol than by the holy spirit and we see that the relationship between the two put in opposition in ephesians five eighteen, where it says do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but in opposition be filled with the Spirit. In other words, one will lead you towards God's plan to, to make you more like Christ. Another, as we know, tends to weaken our, our wall of defence against our fleshly desires. Laziness. We've talked about self-discipline as being like a wall, both for guarding what is good as well as stopping what is damaging and dangerous. Remember one time when I was leading a Bible study at the prison and one of the guys had been along to, a, to an Anglican service and they bring through the prayer book. And it's the first time ever he'd heard someone pray about asking God to forgive them for things they forgot to do or they hadn't done. We often call them sins of omission. One of the pastors I spent a lot of time in my um, time down in Victoria um, before Bible college and everything kept emphasising this point. People basically do what they want to do. 
Now, when we do something, it's generally because that's what we want to do, even whether it's good or whether it's bad. And so often we hear people say, no, I really want to spend more time reading the Bible and more time praying. But at the same, people often have heaps of time to do heaps of other things that are not particularly important, like watching an entire series of a reality TV show, which is probably a greater indication of what they really wanted to do was watch a reality TV show. Self-control and discipline means protecting the things that are valuable and the things that we naturally go to is a good indication of what we consider to be valuable. New Year's resolutions. How often you hear someone talk January, this year I'm going to lose this many kilos, I'm going to be healthy. Then they realise they've got to be self-disciplined and it's hard. They might have to exercise and stop eating some of the things they've been eating. Laziness is something we need to be self-controlled against. The third, in terms of these bodily ones, again, something you, there was a time where you wouldn't even need to think about raisingness in church. Sexual impurity. Now certainly the idea of impure thoughts, that's, that's been there from, from day one. But to think that Christians struggle with actual sexual impure action, unfortunately, is a reality. There was a time when the culture would basically look down upon the idea of sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Now it's basically encouraged, as long as no one's getting hurt and you're enjoying yourself, you do whatever you want. That's the general consensus of what the worldview teaching is. It's been a long time since I've seen statistics of average age that males and females lose their virginity these days, but it's a scary age. Sometimes those ages are even in the higher end of primary school. Sadly, even in pastoral ministry or all sorts of different contexts, you'll find the amount of couples I come across, Christian couples who are living together, sleeping together, and just think, oh, Steve, you old fuddy-duddy, talking about, talking about this stuff, you're so old-fashioned. But if self-control is talking about staying within God's ordained, honouring him with his boundaries, then he should be the one who defines what those boundaries are. Hebrews 13.4 says... Let the marriage bed be held in honour among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God is very clear that there is a place for sexual relationships it's in the marriage between a man and a woman. Now while I say that, there's something else I really do need to say there because I know there's probably no area of sin that people harbour guilt more than this area. And I was, I've got to admit, I was once in that exact same situation. And let me be reminded of the words of First John. He is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he will forgive us from all unrighteousness, including this area. So if this is an area that you've, that you've messed up with in the past or even presently, do not think that it is beyond the grace of God. As I mentioned earlier, when it comes to youth groups, you talk about relationships. The question you're going to get every time is, how far can I go? In other words, how much can I have? If Paul was leading a youth Bible study, and I don't know why, but I can't really picture Paul as being the funky youth pastor doing gross games with food and stuff, but we'll pretend this is Paul's answer to that question. For this is the will of God. Yeah, it's a pretty good indication this is God's will. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
Let each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So if you want a clear statement from Paul, it is God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is anything of a sexual nature that's outside the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Or to make it even more explicit in 1 Corinthians, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. There's no messing around with those words, is he? He says, flee from it. Flee doesn't mean hanging around as close as you can get to. Flee means get, no, get right away nowhere near it. Because it does have such a strong hold. I mean, we, we're born with a sexual desire and, we, and we're supposed to have one because it, the, the, you know, when you get married, it's, it's nice that it actually comes naturally. But flee from immorality. Don't play around with it. The number of Christian leaders who have fallen greatly in this area and damaged their ministry greatly is huge. I was reading a blog thing the other day of 10 spiritual disciplines for a pastor and this was right at the top of the list. Sexual purity. Because it can and does have such a stronghold. Well, Jesus goes even that step further. He says, You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So self-control with regards to sexual purity is not just about your actions, not just about your body. It involves your eyes and your minds also. We're all born with a sexual desire. God has given that. It's, It's not a bad thing that you might have a sexual desire, but God has created a framework within marriage where that is to be enjoyed and to be exercised. Think about Job. Job was a man who was described as being blameless in that first chapter. Yet in chapter 31, he confesses a struggle. He says, I've made a covenant with my own eyes. How then shall I gaze a young virgin? I've made a covenant not to look lustfully at a girl in the NIV. So Job, someone described as being blameless, needed to make a genuine commitment. I'm not going to let my eyes go this direction. And how much more do we who live in a day where there is stuff like this all the way around us? Jesus spoke about our eyes as being the light of the body. Saying your eyes are the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful lest the light in you be in darkness. So be careful what you look at. Now there's, there's stuff all around you. TV, billboards, what's available on the internet. Even when you go down to the shopping centre, what you can see at a shopping centre these days, probably years back a guy probably would have paid lots of money to see that sort of stuff. But not only does he find it all ourselves around us, there was a time when people would feel a sense of shame or embarrassment to go into a newsagent to buy an adult magazine. That someone would see them that they're getting such things. And as you know that through through the internet, uh, they're so freely available and such a damaging and controlling thing. Self-control with sexual purity is a huge thing, but forgiveness is available. 
So if we're seeking to honour God, we must abstain from sexual immorality and we must flee from sexual immorality. Secondly, self-control in our minds, pretty closely related to the previous one. I don't think anyone's ever been a glutton or an adulterer who just instantly became one overnight. It would be extremely unusual for an affair or an adultery to happen that just happened out of the blue nowhere. It's usually the result of a scenario that's been played round and round in someone's mind, entertaining the idea. You need to protect your mind. Because basically everything we do flows from the things that we think about. Like the words that Solomon has to give us in Proverbs. Keep or guard your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flow the springs of life. In Hebrew thought, the heart was the core of your emotions or your decisions, all of your will. It says you protect the very core of who you're at because everything that comes out of your life will come out of what you value and what you treasure. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Be very careful about things you treasure deep down. People can't see them. If you want Paul's advice on self-control of the mind, in Philippians 4 he'd say, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul says, if you want to live a God-honouring life, set your heart and mind on God-honouring things. Value the things that he values. Cherish the things he cherishes. Because the mind can be a dangerous place where so much evil can go on inside your head and eventually come out in the way in which you live. The sad thing is so often we think we're getting away with it. People can't read my mind, unaccountable. People can't see what's going on. It's undetectable. But if we think we're getting away with it, we are deceiving ourselves. In Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. God knows every single thought we've ever had. But, but do you want to know the most disturbing fact about that? Just, just imagine this entertain me for a little while. Say yesterday, you didn't know it, but I was following you around, stalker, um, videoing your entire day, every single thing you did, every single thing you said, complete with captions, subtitles of every thought you had and said, next week we're all going to come together at church and we're going to watch that. Who would feel good about sitting there amongst all their church mates to watch just whatever happened yesterday? None of us would. Particularly our thoughts, if they come up in subtitles, we're in all sorts of trouble. But if I could actually achieve that, I could just imagine how someone would be sitting here just like pretending they didn't exist because their friends were seeing that stuff. And while we are so worried about our friends seeing that stuff, why is it we seem to care so little that God sees it? Our friends are, are sinful and faulty. They struggle with similar stuff and we're worried about their, what their perception of things is. Yet we have a perfect and holy God who, who is so opposed to sin that it costs the life of his son and we seem to be so comfortable with him seeing all that stuff. Sometimes we're so keen to please others with the things we can do visibly and we forget 
to please the one to whom who bought us at a price, to whom we belong. Our prayer should be along the lines of Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What your friends think about you doesn't mean much at all. What does God think about me? God who bought me with his own son. Lastly, with our emotions. Again, pretty closely tied to the idea of our mind. Some emotions in particular can cause us all sorts of issue if not kept under control. Emotions such as anger, bitterness or self-pity. Particularly when I was doing a prison Bible study, anger was a common topic. That probably shouldn't surprise you. So we did a Bible study on anger. And in particular we looked from Ephesians 4.26. Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Anger itself is not a sin. To feel the emotion, there are some things where it is godly and right for us to be frustrated and angry about. When it becomes a sin, is what do you do with it? Do we exercise self-control? Or do we take it out ourselves? We've already seen in previous weeks, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Never will. But excesses in all three of these emotions, anger, bitterness and self-pity, all come from a wrong view of God. Anger, when we're insisting on our revenge, comes from a wrong view of God that God's not actually a God of justice who's going to do what he promises he's going to do in Romans 12. When we're going to excess with bitterness and self-pity, we're doubting that whether or not God actually is working all things for good as he promised for those who love him and called according to his purposes. Now, some of us are more hot-tempered than others. And that's the same in all of these things we've looked at. Some people will have a natural inclination to so strongly opposed to it. And I can put my hand up and say, I am not good in self-control or self-discipline. In psychological terms, you'd probably say, oh, I have an addictive personality. That doesn't mean that God holds me to a lower standard. It just means it's going to be a more difficult struggle. Just as we've gone through other things in the series, there'll be some that, that you, some people look at and go, oh, easy peasy, I don't know why we're even talking about that. Yet some others in the same room will think, that's my real battle. Yet God has given us all the same spirit who desires to pursue the same fruit in all of our life. Now there's enough stuff there that we could have done a sermon on every single part of it, but we're not. But if we have a close and dear relationship with God, we will want to do the things that are pleasing to him. We will want to avoid the things that are not pleasing to him. I like to think about self-discipline in spiritual matters being very similar to being like exercise. Who's ever got to a point where they got really, really unfit and then they decided, I'm going to do lots of exercise? And when they did, who found it fun the first time they did exercise? Like, I go all over the shop with weight and fitness and all that sort of things. And I mean, one time I thought, yep, shortest bike I'm going to do when I start, 30 k's, it was a hot, boiling summer day. Yeah, there was a couple of spews on the way. 
But I say make that connection between self-discipline in our spiritual life and exercise is that both of them, if you have neglected them, at first it's not going to be enjoyable and you're probably not going to want to do it. Now, you hear a lot of people, they think, oh, I've wandered away from God, I've started reading the Bible, two days later I still don't like it, I'm getting nothing out of it, I'm giving up. Self-discipline means sticking with something because you think it's valuable. And same as it goes with exercise, the more you do it, the more not only do you find it enjoyable, um, but you actually start to reap the benefits of it. A wise man once said, God's word will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from God's word. And I think that's a pretty fair statement. Most of us are probably aware of the areas in which we lack self-control. What I might struggle with would probably be different than what you struggle with. But all of us are called to the same standard. As we have done in previous weeks, we are going to finish with a time of prayer and have two aspects to it again. One, that we give thanks that God is unchanging. God is not undisciplined. Like we can, we can be assured that the same God who has dealt with us in Christ is the same God yesterday, today and forever. And we thank you that there doesn't get to a point where he just flies off the handle because sometimes we deserve it. So while we give thanks to God for his character, but we also pray too that God would reveal to us areas where we do lack control and ask for the enabling of his spirit that we might honour him in that area of our life. So we'll have a time of quiet prayer where you are and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you are unchanging. That the very things that you, you promised to us and your, your grace you have shown us is not something you're going to change your mind about. Uh, we thank you that you are, don't lose the plot when you see how frequently we lose the plot. Lord, we, we know that we are born with natural desires for all sorts of things that are uh, the desires of the flesh are contrary to the fruit of the Spirit. But Lord, you also promise too that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Lord, we pray that we will be a people who uh, draw near to you out of a genuine love, out of a genuine desire to know you better and to, to live the life that you've called us to live, depending entirely upon the work of your Spirit to, to work within us, Lord, convict us where need be, but also cause us to come to you in prayer when we find ourselves struggling to be disciplined in any particular area. That we might not fight our fleshly desires with our fleshly strength, but we might fight them in the power of your spirit and standing on the promises of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.